The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Morning. Morning. Why don't we just go ahead and get started? Uh, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and I'll read one through 7. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which has not yet been who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again, I considered all travail in every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second. And he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither hath he. Neither saith he, For whom do I labor, and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. Ecclesiastes, in the beginning, states it is the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. And most likely the prime suspect is King Solomon. Many people disagree with that, and I've looked at both sides of that argument. I don't see any significant reason to dispute that Solomon is the author, especially considering all the parallels we see between the preacher and what uh, elsewhere in Scripture about what we know about Solomon. Ecclesiastes is often seen as the black sheep of Scripture to many people, mainly because at face value it appears to many to be a, quite a bleak and spiritually skeptical book. It opens with the famous refrain, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And pe- people take that to mean that everything's meaningless. They interpret vanity as meaninglessness, or that life is arbitrary, with no real purpose for anything. And it really doesn't help that even some modern Bible translations mislead their readers by translating the word habel as meaninglessness instead of vanity. And I'm not going to go in depth as to what vanity means, but I'll summarize by saying it doesn't mean meaninglessness. The idea is more fleetingness. Literally, habel means a vapor or a breath, a puff of smoke. So you could rightly translate Solomon's words as breath of breaths, all is a breath. If you want a visual illustration, just blow out a candle and watch the smoke rise. And as much as you try to hold on to it, it just slips through your fingers. And in a moment, it dissipates into nothing. And you're left with nothing. No light, no warmth, no comfort, nothing. That's vanity. It's a life pursuing fleeting pleasures and striving after transient dreams, only to come to your end of the life and lose it all. And that's important to note, but... the It's not really the primary discussion today. My point was that many people misinterpret Ecclesiastes, that everything's meaninglessness, and it's not. Another reason why Ecclesiastes is considered a black sheep of Scripture 
is because we don't find a lot of the themes that we find in the rest of the Bible. There's nothing said about the faith of Abraham. There's no mention of the Exodus or the priesthood. And despite all his talk of death, there's no mention of a resurrection. He acknowledges an afterlife. He acknowledges there is a judgment after the life ends. And while he affirms his belief in it, he doesn't dwell on it too much. And I think that's primarily because the next life isn't the main concern of Solomon in writing this book. And I don't think it's the Holy Spirit's either. Now, we do believe in the resurrection to eternal life, but, and we believe that it's one of the most vital doctrines of our faith. But God acknowledges that we're not there yet. We still have to live our life under the sun. We still march our way through this broken and sometimes brutal world, filled to the brim with many distractions, false wisdom, and pleasurable deceptions. People who are even believers fall for these deceptions and distractions. We've developed this little lie called escapism. And if you don't know what escapism is, I'll just read the definition. It's actually quite uh, on point and very simple. Escapism is the tendency to seek distraction and relief from unpleasant realities, especially by seeking entertainment or engaging in fantasy. And I would add to that that uh, amusement is not the only way we try to escape reality. Solomon, here in chapter 4, points out a man who gives his life to labor and work. And many people uh, just pour out their lives and their work to try and find identity or try and find security in their money to escape from the hardships of reality. And if I had to define the whole book of Ecclesiastes, I could put it in a few ways. It's about living in light of eternity. It's an exhortation to live your life like you were dying because you are. And I would also say it's Solomon's intent in Ecclesiastes to burst your bubble, that little bubble you run off to when you see oppression in the world and life becomes too dark and brim to bear. To summarize uh, up until this point in the book, Solomon exhorts us essentially just to take God as God portions it. He explains how God is sovereign over every single detail of your work, every day of your life both the good and the evil, he's in complete control. And there is no straightening out the crookedness of life that he has set in place. So you ought to receive everything you have as a temporal gift from God, knowing that God is in control. So just do your labor day by day and don't fret about the future and enjoy your life. But here in chapter 4, Solomon adds another layer to that exhortation for us. Chapter 4 is all about loving your neighbor as yourself. And I think that's fitting, considering the very next chapter is about worshiping God. Does you know good to offer sacrifices to God if you're not right with your neighbor? If you're out in your daily living worshiping a God called self, ignoring your neighbor, no compassion for them, no love for them, God is not going to accept your offering to him. People are always thinking about themselves. All their thoughts, spending, and planning revolves around trying to make themselves happy. And the preacher is informing us that this sometimes can be the very source of our pain. Solomon in chapter 4 is essentially saying, enjoy your life. But as you enjoy life, share it. We should share our life because ultimately, he explains, there are two ways of living. You can hate your neighbor and destroy yourself, as we see in verses 1 through 6. Or you can love your neighbor and live, verses 7 through 16. In verse 1, we see, 
So I returned and considered all oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears as, as were oppressed, and they had no comforter on their side. And on their side of their, their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Solomon looked out into the world, and he saw unbearable violence. He saw a glimpse of what human depravity is capable of. I can imagine he saw the Un dynasty acting as oppressive dictators over the Korean people, weaving together such a dominating and intricate propaganda that only the devil himself could surpass it. He saw a mere toddler named Christina Logina die of septic shock because her mother held her under scalding hot water as a form of discipline. He probably saw a woman I know personally that lives just down the road from here, raped and prostituted out by her own father. Along with her siblings, she was whipped and deprived of food until she, until she could finally get away from them. And sadly, some of her siblings didn't make it out of the house alive. And I hope you're starting to better understand why Solomon exclaims, Wherefore I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they, which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. And scripture knows how we would feel if we really, all we could do is stare into the face of this dark world. We wouldn't be able to bear it. And so we cope uh, with oppression and just general hardships by distracting ourselves. I mean, think about it. We even pay money just to have someone make us laugh. We give the highest earnings to people who can amuse us the best. And that's an uh, interesting word, isn't it? Amuse. Muse means to think. If you take the letter A and you put it in front of the word, that means the opposite. Amuse means to not think. And it's not that you're not thinking at all, and clearly you're thinking, but you're not thinking about the important matters of life. You're distracting yourself from the weightier matters. But Solomon in chapter 4 offers a better solution than seeking pleasure or seeking power and financial security to try and escape the hardship of life and lighten the load. It's called community. But of course, sinful man likes to destroy any good gift God gives him, and Solomon now lists some of the things that destroy community. The first one is envying our neighbor. When we see someone living a better life than us, they're able to alleviate some of the sorrow in their life, we become jealous, and we strive to obtain what they have, and even if it means forgetting about our neighbors. One person said, we live in a world where we relentlessly pursue the neighbor above us by stepping on the heads of those underneath us. And this is where Solomon makes a keen observation. Many of us are more than ready to announce the oppression that people in power cause. But the Bible also observes the envy of those for those in higher positions by those under them. Verse 4, again, I considered all travail and every right work. For this, a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. There are people who diligently work at building their business and at their studies, and they manage to get a little bit ahead of in life. They gain security and influence, sometimes to great degrees. And do people rejoice with them? Of course not. Their neighbors want to prove that they are just as good as anyone else, if not better than them. After all, we don't really care about others, do we? We're only concerned with ourselves. We want to be the ones being praised. We want to be lavished with respect and luxuries and good living. 
And this becomes a very powerful motivator for why people work and for the actions they take. I think the Bible's point here is that people in lower positions are just as guilty of not loving their neighbor as those in high positions. We have a competitive spirit in all of us that when we hear that our friend just accomplished some admirable feat, we, try and we want to rejoice with them, but deep down we cringe because their success makes us feel our own lacking. As the saying goes, any friend can share your sorrows and failures, but it takes a true friend to share your successes and joys. Learning to love your neighbor can help you avert the folly of envy, and it can also help you avert two separate and opposite follies, Solomon lists, idleness and busyness. I think laziness is just another word for hatred. It's the expression of a heart that has no love or concern for anyone around it. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Instead of working and giving himself to others, the slothful man gives himself to himself. And all he has is himself. And over time, that is not enough. Eventually, he will run out of food in the pantry to eat. He won't have anything to satisfy his cravings. So he'll have to eat himself. And of course, that's not literal. (laughs) Hope it doesn't take you a theologian to understand that. But I've personally seen lazy people erode away their life. I have a man, a woman in my family dating a man who refuses to work. In fact, he even said to our family, why do you bother working? He just lives off of welfare. And where has that gotten him? Well, it's gotten him a woman he lives with that's not his wife, two children living in the back of a trailer that attaches to the back of a truck, not the tiny kind of tow, but the kind of trailer that attaches to the truck, living in front of a meth addict's house. And he has a warrant out for his arrest. They often get in trouble with the law because of their life of pleasure-seeking. They begin to lose all sense of dignity and purpose and ultimately lose their sense of identity and destroy themselves. But Solomon also points out no better is the workaholic, the the person who just can't stop working. Verse 6. Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, there is not a second Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, For whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. Here we find a man frantically working for tomorrow, trying to set himself up for life. He devotes himself to his job. He works countless hours trying to establish security for tomorrow. He thinks his work will make life better for him tomorrow if he works hard today. And that's what we do, don't we? Sometimes to a fault. We think tomorrow will be better than today if we work hard enough. Because tomorrow we're finally going to start reading our Bible again. We're finally going to get the house organized so we can relax. Tomorrow we'll finish school and get our degree. Tomorrow we'll get married, find a good house to live in. Tomorrow we'll meet the deadline and get a promotion, find a better job. And in pursuing that, oftentimes... We give up our time to just enjoy life. And we give up time to develop relationships with others. One commentator said, Living like this is like shooting yourself in the foot so you can hop faster on the other. (laughs) And what does he mean by that? Well, picture a person who starts low on the business ladder and after many, many years of 
giving up his weekends to work overtime, and he diligently pursues his job. He becomes the CEO, and he still spends all his time building his business and accumulating wealth, always living for the next paycheck. And Solomon describes this person in verse 8, There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet there is no end of all his labor. Neither is, he, is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, For whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This also is vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. With both hands full and his pockets filled, he climbed his way to the top. And he's all alone. That's okay. That's fine with him. He doesn't want a family. That would just hold him back. It would mean giving up work time to spend time with them. He can't have friends. He doesn't want friends because he can't make room for them in his busy schedule. He can't deal with other people's burdens. Also, I was listening to a sermon by Matt Chandler. And just to kind of paraphrase what he was saying, he was talking about how he has never had a young lady come in his office and cry because her dad dropped her off at school in an old beat-up Ford truck. And all her friends saw it, and it was just so embarrassing for her. It must mean her dad hates her. <laughs> he has never counseled a woman because their dad couldn't afford a pony or a nice car. But he has had them cry because dad's job could afford the pony and a brand new car. But apparently he couldn't afford time with them. Are you seeing why both the sloth and the frantic busy man both hate their neighbor? Neither of them have time for others. They destroy the community around them. They only care about themselves. The idle man has nothing to give his neighbor because he won't work. He can't give them money. He can't offer assistance because he has no worth ethic. He can't even offer something free like counsel because he won't study. He won't learn. He folds his hands and keeps them shut for himself. And the maniac is no better. Both hands are full with lots to give, but he won't. It's all for him. He's too busy to show love, and he's too busy to have companionship with anyone. I know some of us would like to say, well, I'd never do that. I'd never let business get in my busyness get in the way of my, me and my family. Look around you. This is your family. This is God's family, and the people you're seeing in this room right now are the siblings you will spend your life for all eternity with. And if you want an example of how being busy, too busy for God or too busy for your family and God, that you have to work on Sunday mornings, I understand sometimes you can get caught in a pickle with that. I understand there are exceptions why people aren't here on Sundays, and I do believe it's ultimately about having a heart longing to be here if you can't. But if you want an example of how just kind of treating Sunday as a side issue is a, showing a lack of love for someone, just look at me. I've had the worst year of my entire life. I've come to church many times feeling like my lungs were sunburnt and there was vinegar in my stomach. And I don't know how I would have made it through if it wasn't for my family here. There are many families in this church and many people in this church who have been very faithful to attend the services. And I don't really know how to explain it, but it really encourages me. I saw faithfulness, I saw participation, 
I received counsel. I was invited into their homes and met with hospitality. And on Wednesday nights, I see people who are actually interested in worshiping God and by studying his word. I hear what people have to say, and it reminds me that I'm not alone. And again, I don't really know how to explain it, but just watching people be faithful and be interested in the things of God inspires me. And again, I understand there are exceptions. People may have an illness. They may be out of town. They may work in the military or be a police officer, an ambulance, um, a paramedic. And again, I understand sometimes work really, no matter how hard you try to reschedule or find a different job, you just can't make it here. And that's fine. But normally, when people have a longing to be with their family, they do take active steps to be with them. They don't just passively say to themselves, it would be nice to spend time with my family today. But they don't actually bother to take active steps to be with them. It's no different than the man who works countless hours and ignores his children. He would like to spend time with them, but he doesn't actually do anything. I lost my spot. (laughs) They take active steps to reschedule, to spend time with others. So when both your hands are full, because one of them is caught in the pickle jar, sometimes it means letting go of the pickle to spend time with your family. Sounded a lot better on paper. (laughs) I thought it was clever. Are you a sluggard with both hands shut and nothing to offer anyone? Are you too busy to be concerned with your neighbor's problems? Or are you too focused on your own achievement and advancement that you neglect the burdens of your family and the pain and oppression that others experience? In verse 1 of chapter 4, I do think that Solomon's main point is that world peace can never ultimately be achieved, at least not by man, not until God um, renews the creation. But I also think Solomon is telling us you can alleviate some of that oppression and the hardships of life. Maybe if we could learn to just slow down our busy schedules, we can enjoy life, just enjoying the things God has given us in this temporal, vain life. Maybe if we stopped focusing our own self and gave up that day we planned on sleeping in, maybe we can alleviate someone's suffering by going and visiting them and comforting them. Lastly, I would point out this. I would say you're a fool if you forsake the assembly and don't actively try to be here. Because you, do, you too have a very great oppressor. And he prowls around like a lion just waiting for the moment where he can catch you separate from the herd. And if he ever got his jaws on you, he would shake you violently. Peter says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roi- as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And you know who makes a prime target for lions? An isolated one. Read what Solomon says in verse 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is low when he falleth. For he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? 
And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is, is not quickly broken. And the threefold cord, I think, is referring to a rope. Threads that bind themselves together can carry more weight. You know, I was watching something on YouTube a while back. And it was about a herd of buffalo that they all began to run away together as they spotted a group of lions coming towards them. Except for one buffalo, who was eating and just enjoying the pleasures of life, distracted. It took him a second to realize what was going on. <laughs> he realized all his buffalo friends were leaving. He saw the lions, and he started running shortly after. But there was just in that small moment, it was enough to cause a gap between him and the rest of the herd. And the lions surrounded him. And he could defend himself for a while, and he did. He pushed them back a few times. But eventually the lions got a hold of him. And you know what the entire herd of buffalo did? They didn't just say, well, every buffalo for himself. As long as I'm getting ahead, I'm fine. And they didn't say, I'm just too tired, and I don't have the energy to run back there and help him. I'm really going to need a nap after running away from my problems. You know what they did? They assembled the entire herd of buffalo gathered themselves together, ran back, surrounded the isolated one, and they pushed back their oppressors. It was quite amazing to see, actually. I hope I don't need to explain the point here. <laughs> don't be a lone ranger, Christian, and don't think that just because you're loosely tied to a church that you attend once in a while, that means the world, a worldly oppressor and your spiritual oppressor won't catch you isolated and alone. You need us. And if we can just shift the focus away from you as Solomon wants us to do in chapter 4, we need you. And that's really the whole theme of chapter 4. It's about focusing less on me and more on we. Love your neighbor. Solomon an Solomon's answer for how a man should live all the days of his temporal life, his fleeting life, is trust in God's sovereignty as he orchestrates his cosmic plan for his own purposes, making everything beautiful in its time to glorify himself. As you do, do whatever work he has for you today. Work without fretting about tomorrow so much. Enjoy the gifts God has given you. Accept all its limitations and perplexities. And in chapter 4, Solomon adds another layer to this. While you enjoy your life and the gifts you're given, share them with others. As one hand is full of work, keep the other hand open to giving. And that's my lesson. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.